Welcome to History Talk. We're the podcast that brings together experts to discuss current events and historical perspective. My name is Eric Michael Rhodes, and I'm here with my co-host, Lauren Henry. Hi, Eric. Over the last two decades, the Catholic Church has been buffeted by a series of sexual abuse scandals. High-profile investigative reports have uncovered cases of sexual abuse of minors, both boys and girls, by Catholic priests, nuns, and members of religious orders. In 2002, the Boston Globe's investigation of sexual abuse committed by priests in the Boston area brought the issue to national attention in the United States. Yet the sexual abuse scandal within the Catholic Church is truly global in scope, with cases reported in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and countries in Latin America, Europe, Africa, and Asia. What makes the Catholic Church such a rife environment for sexual abuse? How do these scandals reflect the history of the Church? How has the Church responded to this problem, and how might the scandal shape its future? In this episode, we'll seek to answer these questions and more in an exploration of the historical context and contemporary ramifications of the sexual abuse scandal within the Catholic Church. We're very fortunate to be joined today by two highly esteemed experts on the subject. First, we have Professor Witze de Boer, who teaches history at Miami University. Professor de Boer is a specialist in medieval and early modern Europe and is the author of this month's Origins feature on the longer history of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. Thanks so much for joining us in studio, Professor. It's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. We're also joined by Professor Alexander Stilla of the Columbia School of Journalism. Professor Stilla has worked as a contributor at publications including the New York Times, La Repubblica, The New Yorker Magazine, The Boston Globe, and the Toronto Globe and Mail, where he has published extensively on the church's sexual abuse scandals. We're so happy to have you on, Professor. Thanks for having me. So to start off, how did allegations of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church first come to light? In the recent history, sexual abuse allegations have a particular departure point. In, I think it was 1984 or 1985, a lawsuit was brought against an abusing priest in the state of Louisiana in the United States. And that tipped off the uh, papal nuncio in Washington that they had a problem, they had to hire a lawyer. And the lawyer began to look into it and they also appointed a canon lawyer in the Washington embassy in effect of the Vatican, a man named Thomas Boyle, who began looking into this question. The lawyer on the case and Doyle The more they looked into it, they reported back and said, the church has a big problem. There are many more of these potential suits out there. We better do something. So that was the beginning of it. And in fact, during the late 80s and during the 90s, particularly in the United States, cases of this kind began making their way through the legal system. Most of them were settled out of court for substantial sums of money in order to keep them quiet. The Court records of those cases were generally sealed and people signed non-disclosure agreements not to talk about the contents of them. But bit by bit, some of these things came out into the open. There were groups formed in the United States, one called SNAP, which was a group that was meant to support people who had been victims of priestly abuse. Parallel investigations began to happen in places like Australia, Ireland, And so by the late 1990s, early 2000s, there was quite a lot of information that was making its way into the public. And then, as you mentioned in your intro, the Spotlight case in Boston, which was a big investigation carried out by the Boston Globe newspaper, 
brought things out into the open in a very, very substantial way and also indicated that people in the church at a very high level had covered up and known about the levels of abuse, generally transferred offending priests to other places in order to keep things quiet. But it should be said that there was a great deal known already, even before that, the allegations against the founder of the Mexican Order of Legionnaires, Marcel Maciel, were very well known already in the 1990s. It's been making its way into, into the public arena for nearly 30 years. So, Professor Stella, we'll be diving into the deeper history with Dr. DeBoer. But sticking with this most recent history, why did it take until the 1980s for this to be investigated? I think because there were a series of cultural changes that needed to happen for these kinds of things to gain public attention. Number one, pedophilia and sexual abuse of the young was something that had in general been ignored legally and in society, and there began to be a greater consciousness of that as a crime that needed to be pursued vigorously. Number two, the church in the past had enjoyed an incredible degree of impunity for things that priests did. Classically, there were, there were cases for decades in which if police learned about a wayward priest who had done something wrong, had a drinking problem, was arrested in a gay bar, was accused of getting a girl pregnant or molesting a boy. This was brought to the attention of the bishop. The bishop was a very respected person in that area. The police, in a sense, let them handle it privately. It was assumed to be church business that would be settled uh, quietly. And, of course, many of the police, at least in the United States, in many dioceses, were themselves Irish and Italian Catholics, So they were kind of part of, um, in a way, a cultural system that allowed this to stay in-house. Newspapers didn't pursue these kinds of stories for similar reasons. And that culture began to change. The church could no longer count on the same degree of impunity when things like this happened. And so families that in the past would have accepted a bishop's admonition not to talk about this was no longer willing to do it. And then you also have things like the internet happening in the 1990s that greatly facilitated communication so that people in Arizona would know about cases in Minnesota, would know about you know victims in New Jersey who could then get together and communicate in ways that they wouldn't have been able to in the past. So a number of different things coming together to make it hard to do. And then there are also, from what the studies that have been done, priestly abuse, particularly when it comes to the young, appears to have increased and peaked in the late 1970s. Uh, We can later get into why that might be. But the problem itself certainly existed before, but it may have increased in the period just before these abuses then began to be made public. And so the frequency may have also been a factor in bringing them to light. 
Well, one thing that I would like to to uh, to, to emphasize and and to confirm is that up till quite recently, uh, cases of sex abuse as well as other offenses committed by clergy were very much considered to be an internal matter of the church, and we can talk more deeply about the system and particularly the legal arrangements that led to this kind of handling of of these cases. Professor Stille is is absolutely right about this. So we've talked a little bit about the United States context, but what is the scope of the sexual abuse scandal in terms of regions affected? Well, the truth is that almost everywhere where there are substantial numbers of Catholics, this problem exists. You know, when you read the reports that were done in Australia, when you read the report that was done in Great Britain, brought before the the House of Commons, uh, when you read about the things that happened in Irish convents and monasteries, you read about South America or Malta, Germany, it's always the same story. Because the clerical system that is in place in the Catholic world throughout is very, very similar. And so we can't quantify the degree of abuse with a great deal of precision, but the pattern seems to be remarkably consistent, which is that you have a world in which, which is homosocial in the sense that it is an all-male priesthood that is often given considerable responsibility over small children. There are various environments in the world that tend to lend themselves to abuse. I mean, in some cases, you see it in summer camps and prisons and men who are supposed to be not sexually active and therefore whose sexuality has been repressed, its normal channels forbidden, are suddenly in charge of the lives of children and of seminarians. So abuse takes place when abuse is reported Uh, You have a system that is set up to enforce silence. The church has a deep tradition of wanting to avoid scandal. The good of the the church is considered to be superior to the particular harm done in this or that individual case. And so even if people were to complain, it would come to the attention of a bishop or archbishop that person's attitude would generally be, for the good of the church, we shouldn't talk about this. They would try to convince the complaining family to keep quiet about it. And when that didn't work, they would then hire lawyers, uh, would try to discredit plaintiffs, in some cases intimidate them by the legal power that they could bring to bear. And when that didn't work and the case moved forward, they would come to a settlement, make a financial settlement, and insist on a non-disclosure agreement. And then they would generally deal quite lightly with the offending priest. One thing we didn't mention in the earlier discussion that I think changed and that was a contributing factor in this problem growing in the way that it did is the church itself, I think, also didn't understand the nature of sexual abuse as well as it needed to. They were sort of operating on a kind of sin model. The people doing this were guilty of a sin if they repented or got treatment 
they could then be put back on the straight path. They were not well acquainted with the psychology of people who tend to commit these kinds of crimes. You don't easily uh, reform somebody who is a serial sex abuser and pedophile. And so operating on this kind of sin and atonement model, they then kept these people in the church. They didn't defrock them. They transferred them somewhere else, maybe gave them a little counseling. They, they began to have centers where these people could have treatment, but they rarely accomplished anything. And these people then would commit the same kind of crimes again. So that pattern is true in virtually every, everywhere where we've seen cases. It's almost always the same story because the system is remarkably uniform around the world. And the system is set up to protect the institution of the church and not the people suffering these kinds of abuses. It's, it's, it's correct that this has a very deep history. Mm -hmm. And it goes back centuries, all the way to the Middle Ages, when effectively the, the Roman Church developed a parallel legal system that is still called canon law, which had a remarkable degree of jurisdiction, particularly over the lives and the rights of clergy. And so clergy enjoyed remarkable degrees of immunity from prosecution in civil courts. What that means is that cases that came before bishops or other ecclesiastical courts, such as the Inquisition, which comes to take on responsibility for the prosecution of what is called solicitation cases, and that is sexual abuse cases, that these institutions, Catholic institutions, prosecute these cases internally under the strict obligation of secrecy, then what happens to the, the accused, whether found guilty or not, remains behind closed doors. And again, we can talk a little bit more about the circumstances in which this culture of secrecy became even more, let's say, institutionalized over the centuries, starting with the time of, of the Reformation. What is the history of secrecy in the church? How does it function? What are the reasons for it within the church? And how does it really enable these kinds of situations? The fundamental issue is that in the history of the, the Catholic Church, there's been a very long pattern of deep-seated pattern of tensions between states and the church. It goes back to the Middle Ages uh, when the European monarchies and other territorial states begin to object to the forms of what they see as judicial interference, and that ranges from the right to tax to the right of jurisdiction property rights, but also, as is most relevant here, the rights of clergy. That issue, that kind of tension, becomes full-blown during the time of the Reformation. What you might call the 16th century sexual abuse crisis is very much at the heart of that issue. The situation is that in the early 16th century, there is a great amount of criticism of the church as an institution. There are charges of corruption. Um, most people have heard of the, of the indulgence affairs that Martin Luther objected to. But there's also a pervasive form of anti-clericalism. Priests are often accused of being ill-trained, 
of displaying immoral behavior, of being drinkers and gamblers, as well as abusing women. The image of the lecherous priest is almost a stereotype in the early 16th century. And a famous humanist like Erasmus makes jokes about it and publishes these jokes. What happens then is that as the Reformation unfolds, this becomes part of the wide array of charges that reformers launch against the Catholic Church. What happens then is that the Catholic Church is thrown into the defensive. There is a sense among reform-minded Catholics, and including in the, in the higher levels of, of the leadership, that some form of response is, is appropriate. However, those responses are to be pursued internally, behind closed doors. This becomes a pattern. Over the following centuries, these confessional disputes, polemics, these controversies don't stop, quite the opposite. They linger on for centuries. So let's say managing this issue of the abuse of particularly women is what is mostly under discussion in the confessional and in other environments, in convents, and becomes also a matter of managing the public relations of the church. And that continues in the Enlightenment period with new waves of anti-clericalism. It is revived again in the, the 19th century when the church, after the revolutions of 1848, develops a kind of anti-modernist stance, uh, is very concerned about anti-clericalism in various parts of, of Europe as well as in the United States. In other words, this culture of secrecy becomes, let us say, part of the genetic code of clerical culture. Dr. DeBoer, would you just elaborate a bit on an early scandal that emerges in the, the 1500s, which you write about in your Origins right, article? Right, right, right. At the center of the concerns in the 16th century is the relations that some priests had with women who came to them to confess. Sacramental confession was and is a key part of Catholic religious life. It was had been a requirement for all Catholics of adult age to confess their sins at least once a year to a priest, a, a licensed confessor since 1215, so it goes way back into the Middle Ages. And then over the course of the Middle Ages, confession in some environments, particularly in urban environments and among, let's say, circles of the devout, takes on a bit of a different character. So the frequency of confession increases in these, these circles and it becomes a regular kind of devotional practice. Confession catches on in the form of spiritual direction, as it's, as it's called, uh, particularly among devout women, whether nuns or other religious women or laywomen. What that almost inevitably meant is that you get confessors who establish relationships with women. The concern is that this leads to, to sexual abuses. Urban authorities, civic authorities get wind of this and hear stories from families that are upset. An early Inquisition case in Italy that I've studied is from the city of Udine, when the, where there was an office of the Inquisition. They receive a furious letter of two male members of a patrician family in the late 1500s, accusing one local brother 
of having abused a younger daughter in their family. So at that point, the Inquisition is not even formally charged with prosecuting these uh, these cases, but they feel compelled to do so because there is a prominent family that has lodged these complaints. And so at that point, you get the question, how do we respond to this? One of the, the big issues having to do with confession is that confession is protected by the seal of secrecy. So there are all kinds of debates about whether the seal of confession can be broken or not. And the answer in the end is, is yes, under these circumstances, it can. And certainly a confessor should tell a penitent, a female penitent, or male for that matter, who comes up with this kind of allegation that she or he should report these cases to the authorities. Initially, it's to bishops, but from the late 16th century onwards, this becomes an official charge of the Inquisition. The period of the late 15th, early 16th century, this is a sort of high watermark right for popes having illegitimate children, sexually active popes. Isn't this also part of the kind of allegations about the corruption of the church? Would that have played a role? Certainly in the background. Mm -hmm. One thing that's very hard to disentangle in studying these cases is that the Reformation and the Catholic response to the Reformation, often called the Counter-Reformation, is a war of words. So accusations are launched mm. left and right, back and forth. It's not always easy to separate fact from fiction. Of course, of course, the historian's dilemma. So we have this issue of secrecy, and then we also perhaps have the question about the connection between clerical celibacy and the sexual abuse scandals. Professor Stiller, you wrote in the New York Review of Books last year that the Catholic dogma of clerical celibacy has, quote, contributed to the present crisis, end quote. Could you elaborate on maybe how that might happen and what the connection there would be? Well, I think it's really central to this whole issue. And as the history that Professor DeBoer was talking about in the Reformation period indicates, the reality is that it's very difficult for most human beings to be celibate for their entire life. People are put on the earth to reproduce. Most people uh, seek out sexual partners in their lives. And it's been the plain reality that people who have entered the priesthood, many of whom, uh, particularly in previous eras, entered the priesthood for a variety of reasons other than religious devotion, had sexual relations with, with people. In a sense, the church for a long time understood this and turned a blind eye to it. They would periodically try to crack down on it, but the reality is that throughout the ages, priests have violated their vows of celibacy with regularity. And as Professor DeBoer indicated, it was the licentious or randy priest or monk was a trope or stereotype in literature going back many centuries. The problem is that when you outlaw sexuality and a solid plurality or majority of priests are sexually active, then you're going to have sexuality that is by definition deviant and, and out of bounds. In many cases, particularly, you know, during the period Dr. Bohr was talking about, it involved priests abusing the confession as a way of forming intimate relationships with uh, parishioners and then using that to seduce them. The problem, I think, gets even worse when you go forward in time into the 20th century where, you know, for many centuries, it was well known that many priests had a woman to whom they were close, a housekeeper, 
uh, between quotes, who lived with the priest, acted as a housekeeper, but was in effect the common law wife of the priest. Or you would have these local scandals of a priest who had a relationship with a parishioner. There was a child born out of wedlock, but it was hushed up, things of that kind. In the modern era, that became harder to deal with. At the time of the Second Vatican Council, you know, which is convened the end of the 1950s, beginning of the 1960s, it was the hope of many people uh, and many of the bishops attending the Vatican Council that the church would finally deal with this problem of priestly marriage and at least allow priests who were in effect common law husbands to legitimate their relationships, allow priests who were not able to live by the vows of celibacy to remain priests but do so as married people. Pope Paul VI took over the Vatican Council after the death of Pope John XXIII, and despite widespread agreement that there was nothing doctrinally prohibiting a priestly marriage, Pope Paul VI closed the door on that. Remember, this is also happening at the time of the encyclical against contraception, Humanae Vitae, and a kind of general sort of anti-sexual moment in the church's history. And so making priests then live up to the vows of celibacy with a greater rigor uh, than had been practiced before. The hypocrisy of the past was no longer as acceptable. Also, modern media tended to publicize these cases more than was the case in the past. Long and short is I think there was a substantial exodus of straight priests out of the clergy in the 60s and 70s, and that the clergy increasingly became, in a way, a, a closet for a gay Catholic men. It was much easier to hide your sexuality in an all-male environment than to hide a relationship with a woman, uh, because the people you might be having sex with may, were, may have been part of your own confraternity, may have lived in the seminary where you lived, and so on and so forth. Many of these people, I think, entered, and there was an interesting long article on this just in uh, today's New York Times, uh, based on interviews with um, Catholic priests, uh, gay Catholic priests. <clears throat> Many of these people entered the priesthood uh, believing as good Catholics that their homosexual tendencies were sinful and wrong. They were hoping that by entering the priesthood, they could remain celibate and in a sense avoid the crisis that their homosexuality presented to their faith. And then at some point they failed because it is very, very difficult to deny that part of your personality. And the church, in my opinion, has never dealt in an honest and forthright way about the fact that the institution of celibacy has failed and has failed historically in almost every era. In the early centuries of the church, uh, priests and bishops were routinely married. The gospel indicates that St. Peter was married because there's a, an episode that refers to his mother, his mother-in-law. St. Paul, in one of his letters, uh, is asked whether by his early parishioners whether it's all right to have sex or not. And he says, you know, I remain unmarried, but this is not something that everyone can do. It is better to marry than to burn, he says. That wisdom was lost somewhere along the way in an attempt to enforce the policy of celibacy. Uh, keep in mind, of course, that the Eastern Church, one of the reasons for the schism between the Eastern Church and the Western Church based in Rome was over the issue of priestly marriage. So priests in you know, Greece or Russia or in the Slavic world marry. And then, of course, 
with the Lutheran Reformation, Protestant ministers marry. So the church's position is not based in Christian doctrine, it's based on Catholic tradition, and as a practical matter, it's failed. And then in the current environment where it is much harder to maintain the code of secrecy, it's actually favored a particularly unhealthy, closeted environment in which sexual abuse tends to thrive. One of the issues I wanted to bring up in um, that article I wrote is that even though a minority of priests are abusing children, if other of their brothers are having illicit sexual affairs, they're not in the strongest position to discipline those who are abusing children. They have secrets they want to protect. They're vulnerable to blackmail. Everybody knows a lot about everybody else inside of that very closed world. It's not an environment that lends itself to self-policing. One of the unfortunate things that this has led to in recent debates within the Catholic Church is the conflation of the phenomenon of gay priests within the Catholic Church with the sexual abuse crisis. That's very unfortunate because studies have shown that there is no link there between the sexual orientation of the abusing priests in question and the degree to which they, they abuse children. So the other thing that I think from a historical perspective is, is interesting to note is that whereas, you know, within conservative circles in the Catholic Church, there has been something of a backlash against the phenomenon of, of gay priests within the church, essentially accusing them as the root cause of the crisis. When you look at the longer perspective, you can see that it's not same-sex abuse that is the dominant pattern. In fact, when you look at the cases of the Inquisition, in cases of sexual solicitation, ranging from the, the late 16th century all the way into the 18th century, practically all of these cases are about the abuse of women, young women, marriageable women, as well as married women or nuns. Obviously, the question is, why is that? Does that mean there was no abuse of boys or young men? Obviously, that's not necessarily the conclusion. What is the case is that it was particularly those offenses against women that made it into the legal system, right, that made, made it to the, the Inquisition in this case. In other words, there's a very complex history here, but certainly one that, you know, helps us to put into perspective these charges against gay priests today. Well, there are a couple of points I wanted to add on. One, to your first point, which I think is very important to make, about the false equation between gay priests and sexual abuse, one of the most interesting but little publicized findings in the John Jay report that the Catholic Church commissioned after the, the spotlight period was that the people who abused, they found that among the people that they interviewed, the priests they interviewed, there was a sizable component of priests that identified as gay, there were a certain percentage that identified as straight and a certain percentage that weren't sure. The abusers were people who were confused about their sexuality. The priests who identified as gay tended to have sex with other men, adults. The people who identified as straight tended to have sex with adult women. It was the people who were in crisis, in effect, and uncertain about their sexuality. That So I think it's, again, this 
to my view, very unhealthy anti-sexual culture within the church, which has in part contributed to people who have in a sense a disturbed sexuality. Your point about the fact that in the past, most of the abuse cases that at least were reported were involved women makes a lot of sense. It's important to remember that, you know, particularly during previous eras, many people entered the priesthood for non-religious reasons. You know, there's sort of the classic case of in the world of primogenitor that the first son inherits the estate, the second son goes into the army, and the third son goes into the priesthood. The priesthood was a vehicle of social advancement in many cases. It was an avenue of learning. It was an opportunity to get an education. It was an opportunity to occupy a place of prestige in society. There were all sorts of non-religious reasons to be a priest or simply for some poor people just to have three meals a day and a roof over your head. So these people were ordinary men without that particular dedication and they ended up doing what most men do, which is to seek out sexual partners. As I said, I think that the shift that happens in the 20th century, which increases the percentage of gay priests, has to do with the unwillingness to accept what the church accepted in previous eras, which was that you had a lot of men who were chasing women, and that became intolerable. The church couldn't deal with uh, either that or the possibility of a married priesthood, and that pushed a lot of straight men out of the a priesthood and made uh, seminaries and monasteries sort of safe closets for gay Catholic men. How central has celibacy been to the clerical dogma of the Catholic Church? How has it changed over time, Professor DeBoer? So, as Professor Steele already said, for many centuries in the early church, celibacy was not established doctrine at all. That changes in the, in the 11th century, which is the time exactly of the split with the, the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church. It's the time of an important reform movement in the West called the, the Gregorian Reform. And it's from that point onward that celibacy comes to be an expectation of the, the priesthood. And the, there are several aspects to that and, and several rationales. One clearly has to do with an association of abstinence from sexual activity with an ideal of holiness. Priests were supposed to be holy men, the same way that nuns were supposed to be holy women, to whom the community could look up, who would pray on their behalf in monasteries or in parish churches, and so on and so forth. There is a certain concept of, of holiness that gets promoted by these reform circles in the Western Church. The other thing is, and that's not something that's typically talked about, the Church for its existence, for its survival, depends on the donations of the faithful in the form of legacies, in the form of charitable gifts, and so on and so forth. Having a married priesthood would make it very hard for the church to be able to perpetuate its control over its belongings or over its possessions, which in the Middle Ages and the early modern period consisted largely of land. 
So by the end of the Middle Ages, the, the church is, is the largest landowner in Europe. What that meant was that the expectation, the rule of, of celibacy also had very important implications for the legal rights, the property rights, and, and thereby the, the possessions of the church. So in, in technical terms, whenever a person left a bequest that included a gift to the church that went into the dead hand, as it was called, which meant that it was perpetually owned by the church. This made it imperative for the church not to give rights of bequest to its clergy. Giving priests the right to marry would almost inevitably entail that. Instead, priests, parish priests, other kinds of priests, up to the highest levels of the, of the church, cardinals, canons of, of cathedrals, during their careers and to, during their active years would receive as material support so-called benefices, right? They would, again, often pieces of landed property from which they would enjoy the fruits as long as they were active and, and worked as priests. But upon their death, those benefices would revert to the church. So in other words, there are very important material and, and legal reasons behind this entrenched system of, of celibacy, whether or not, of course, those rules were followed. That's immaterial to this conversation. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been a fascinating look into the deeper history of concepts that are often presented as doctrinal requirements. What I'm curious about is the question of how the sexual abuse scandal fuels and feeds into these divisions within the church. We're now 50 years after the Second Vatican Council and those reforms, and it seems as if there is as big a divide between different parties of what the church should look like as there ever has been, or at least in modern memory. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about how sexual abuse scandals may have fed into the divisions within the Catholic Church and how different camps or different sides have used the sexual abuse scandal as evidence for what they think the church should look like in the 21st century. For example, the hardline conservatives in the church blame the Second Vatican Council for, as... Pope Paul VI said, sort of letting the smoke of Satan into the cupola of St. Peter's, that the Vatican Council, Second Council introduced a kind of era of moral relativism, anything goes, that went well with the permissive 1960s, that led to increased sexual activity of priests and therefore sexual abuse by priests. Increased liberalism of the church led to people turning a blind eye to the increasing number of gay priests in the clergy. And so they see their worst fears about Vatican II confirmed by what's happening in the current crisis. Similarly, the liberals in the church would say that the unwillingness to consider a married priesthood has closed uh, the avenue into the priesthood for hundreds of thousands of, of men who might willingly become priests and otherwise are discouraged from doing so. The unwillingness to consider the ordination of women and a priest role. The women in the church has contributed to the calamitous drop among nuns and the ban against divorce, against birth control 
has uh, contributed to a kind of moral sexual panic within the church, which has created some of the unhealthy atmosphere that one sees in the contemporary church. So both sides see a confirmation of their own ideas about what is wrong and what should happen with the church. So I think you're, I think you're right that yes, different ways of reading this crisis has deepened the divisions within the church. And you see quite notably in the, the letter of Monsignor Carla Maria Viganò, who actually called for Pope Francis's resignation and blamed him for ignoring cases of sexual abuse in the church. That very much is part of this thing. There now is a quite recognizable cadre of church conservatives who are working hard to oust a pope they consider too liberal, even though he's in fact not changed any important doctrines on these issues at all. Uh, Church liberals are disappointed that the seeming openness and tolerance that he displayed early on in his papacy hasn't had a lot of follow-up and that he has not been as vigorous about pursuing sexual abuse as they might have hoped as well. You have, a, in some ways, kind of worst of all a possible world scenario in the church where both liberals and conservatives are unhappy, deeply divided, and it's very difficult to see what the way out for Pope Francis is without aggravating those divisions even further. The current moment is is one of an extraordinary crisis, which I think is also very significant if you if you take the longer historical view. So amidst the current culture wars within the Catholic Church, I think it's possible to perceive some very significant and dramatic ruptures with that very long past of the Catholic Church. One is that it's no longer really credible, as has happened for decades, for church officials to blame the world, quote-unquote, for what ails the church, and particularly when it comes to explaining the background of the sex abuse crisis. It's become evident now that there are fundamental problems within the church. Professor Stille has already commented extensively on the very understanding of human sexuality and the ways in which it has been implemented within the structures of the Catholic Church and the doctrines of the Catholic Church that has has had very serious consequences for the ways in which this crisis has been handled or has not been handled. The other thing I would say is that we are now beginning to see the breakdown of the culture of secrecy that we've talked about earlier in this broadcast. It is, in a sense, ironically due to these internal disputes that have become ever more virulent within the Catholic Church that calls are being made for openness and accountability by Catholic leaders, regardless of their ideological stance. So that also goes hand in hand with an increased willingness on the part of the leadership in the last 15 years or so, particularly in the United States, to make sure that these cases of sex abuse are no longer handled internally, but that they're automatically referred to civil authorities. That is really a tremendous change in the, the culture and the, and the practices of the church. 
Implementation is another matter, of course, but nevertheless, this is a major change. Thank you to our two guests, Professors Witze de Boer and Professor Alexander Stille. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. Thanks, everyone. This episode of History Talk was brought to you by Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, an online publication of the Public History Initiative, the Goldberg Center, and the History Departments at The Ohio State University in Columbus and Miami University in Oxford, Ohio. Our main editors are David Steigerwald, Steve Kahn, and Nicholas Brayfogel. Our audio and technical advisor is Paul Kotheimer. Our audio producers and hosts are Lauren Henry and Eric Michael Rhodes. Song and band information can be found on our website. You can find our podcasts and more on our website origins.osu.edu, on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. As always, you can find us on Twitter at OriginsOSU and at History Talk Pod. Thanks for listening. See you next month.